Part 1. Chapter 1. Just before dusk in the late afternoon of June 16, 1832, I found myself walking along the crowded docks of Liverpool, England, following a man by the name of Grummage. Though a business associate of my father, Mr. Grummage was, like my father, a gentleman. It was he my father delegated to make the final arrangements for my passage to America. He was also to meet me when I came down from school on the coach, then see me safely stowed aboard the ship that my father had previously selected. Mr. Grummage was dressed in a black frock coat with, with a stovepipe hat that added to his considerable height. His somber, sallow face registered no emotion. His eyes might have been those of a dead fish. Miss Doyle, he said as I stepped from the Liverpool coach. Yes, sir. Are you Mr. Grummage? I am. Pleased to meet you, I said, dipping a curtsy. Quite, he returned. Now, Miss Doyle, if you would be so good as to indicate which is your trunk, I have a man here to carry it. Next, please oblige me by following and everything shall be as it's meant to be. Might I say goodbye to my chaperone? Is that necessary? She's been very kind. Make haste then. In a flutter of nervousness, I identified my trunk, threw my arms about Miss Emerson, my sweet companion for the trip down, and bid her a tearful farewell. Then I rushed after Mr. Grummage, who had already began to move on. A rough-looking porter, laboring behind, carried my trunk upon his back. Our little parade reached Dockside in good order. There I became instantly agog at the mass of ships that lay before us, masts and spurs thick as bristles on a brush. Everywhere I looked, I saw mountains of rare goods piled high, bales of silk and tobacco, chests of tea, a parrot, a monkey. Oh yes, the smell of tea was intoxicating to one who knew little more than the smell of the trim-cut lawns and the fields of the Barrington School. Then, too, the surging crowds of workers, sailors, and merchants, all rough-hewn, brawny men, created an exotic late-afternoon hubbub. All in all, it was the most delicious chaos, which, while mildly menacing, was no less exciting because of that. Indeed, in some vague way, I had the feeling that it was all there for me. Mr. Grummage, sir, I called after. What is the name of the ship I'm about to sail on? Mr. Grummage paused briefly to look at me as though surprised I was there, to say nothing of asking a question. Then from one of his pockets he drew a screw of paper. Squinting at it, he pronounced, The Seahawk. Is she British or American? American. A merchant ship? To be sure. How many masts? I don't know. Will the other families already be on board? I should think so, he answered, exasperation in his voice. For your information, Miss Doyle, I have received word that departure was being put off, but when I checked with the captain directly, he informed me that there must have been some misunderstanding. The ship is scheduled to leave with the first tide tomorrow morning, so there can be no delay. To prove this point, he turned to move again. I, however, Unable to quell my excitement, in my excited curiosity, managed to slip in one more question. Mr. Grummage, sir, 
what is the captain's name? Mr. Grummidge stopped again, frowning in an irritated fashion, but all the same consulted his paper. Captain Jaggery, he announced, and once more turned to go. Here, the porter exclaimed suddenly. He had come up close and overheard our talk. Both Mr. Grummidge and I looked about. Uh, did you say Captain Jaggery? The porter demanded. Are you addressing me? Mr. Grummidge inquired, making it perfectly clear that if so, the porter had committed a serious breach of decorum. I was, the man said, talking over my head, and I'm asking if I heard right when you said we were going to a ship mastered by a certain Captain Jaggery. He spoke the name Jaggery as if it were something positively loathsome. I was not addressing you, Mr. Grummidge informed the man. But I hears you all the same, the porter went on, and so saying, he swung my trunk down upon the dock with such a ferocious crack that I feared it would snap in two. I don't intend to take one more step toward anything to do with a Mr. Jaggery, not for double gold, not one more step. See here, Mr. Grummidge cried with indignation. You undertook, never mind what I undertook, the man retorted. It's worth more to me to avoid that man than to close with your coin. Without another word, he marched off. Stop, I say, stop, Mr. Grummidge called. It was in vain. The porter had gone, and quickly at that. Mr. Grummidge and I looked at each other. I hardly knew what to make of it, nor clearly did he. Yet he did what he had to do. He surveyed the area in search of a replacement. There, you man, he cried to the first who passed by, a huge laboring fellow in a smock. Here's a shilling if you can carry this young lady's trunk. The man paused, looked at Mr. Grimmage, at me, and at the trunk. That? he asked disdainfully. I'll be happy to add a second shilling, I volunteered, thinking that a low offer was the problem. Miss Doyle, Mr. Grummidge snapped. Let me handle this. Two shillings, the workman said quietly or quickly. One, Mr. Grummidge countered. Two, the workman repeated and held his hand out to Mr. Grummidge, who gave him but one coin. Then the man turned and extended his hand to me. Hastily, I began to extract a coin from my ridicule. Miss Doyle, Mr. Grummidge objected. I did promise, I whispered, and dropped the coin into the man's upturned palm. Right you are, miss, said the porter with a tip of his hat. May the whole world follow in your fashion. This commendation of my principles of moral goodness brought a blush of pleasure that I could hardly suppress. As for Mr. Grummidge, he made a point of clearing his throat to indicate his disapproval. Now then, the porter asked, where does the young lady require this? Never mind where, Mr. Grummidge snapped. Along the docks here, I'll tell you when to arrive. The monkey pocketed. The man lumbered over into my trunk, swung it to his shoulder with astonishing ease, considering the trunk's weight and size, and said, lead on. Mr. Grummidge, wasting no more time and perhaps fearful of the consequence of more talk, started off again. After guiding us through a maze of docks and quays, he came to a stop. 
With a half turn, he announced, there she sits, and gestured to a ship moored in the slip before us. I had hardly looked where he pointed when I heard a thump behind. Startled, I turned and saw that the new man, the one we had just engaged, had taken one look at the Seahawk, set down my trunk in haste, and, like the first, run off without any word of explanation at all. Mr. Grummidge barely glanced over his shoulder at the hastily departing worker. In exasperation, he said, Miss Doyle, you will have to wait for me here. And with rapid strides, he took himself up the gangplank onto the Seahawk where he disappeared from my view. I stood my place, more than ever wanting to get aboard and meet the delightful children who would be my traveling companions. But as I waited for the dock for something like in half an hour, all but unmoving in the waning light of day, I could only gaze upon the ship. To say that I was unduly alarmed when I examined the Seahawk would be nonsense. I had not the remotest suspicious notion of what was to come. Nothing of the kind. No, the Seahawk was a ship like countless others I had seen before, or for that matter, I have ever seen. Oh, perhaps she was smaller and older than I had anticipated, but nothing else. Moored to the dock, she rode the swell easily. Her standard rigging, tarred black for protection against the sea salt, rose above me, dark ladders to an increasingly dark sky, and indeed her royal yard seemed lost in the lowering night. Her sails, tied up, that is, reefed, looked like sleeves of new-fallen snow on lofty trees. Briefly, the Seahawk was what is known as a brig, two-masted ship with a snowmast behind the main. Perhaps some hundred, perhaps some seven hundred tons in weight, one hundred seven feet stern to bow, a hundred thirty feet deck to main mask cap. She was built perhaps in the late eighteenth or early nineteenth century. Her hull was painted black, her bulwarks white, these being ordinary colors. Her two masts, raked slightly back, were square rigged. She had a bowsprit, too, one that stood out from her bow like a unicorn's horn. Indeed, the one unique aspect of the ship was a carved figurehead of a pale white seahawk behind the bowsprit. Its wings were thrust back against the bow. Its head extended forward, beak wide open, red tongue protruding as if screaming. In the shadowy light that twisted and distorted its features, I was struck by the notion that this figure looked more like an angry, avenging angel than a docile bird. The dockside was deserted and growing darker. I felt like taking myself up the gangplank in search of Mr. Grummidge, but alas, my good manners prevailed. I remained where I was, standing in a dreamlike state, thinking I know not what. But gradually, like a telescope being focused, I began to realize I was watching something clinging to one of the mooring ropes on the ship's stern. It reminded me of a picture I had once seen of a sloth, an animal that hangs upside down upon jungle vines. But this, I gradually perceived, was a man. He appeared to be shimmying himself from the dock up to the seahawk. 
even as I realized what I was seeing, the boarded ship and I was he boarded the ship and I was gone. I had no time to absorb that vision before I heard angry voices. Turning, I saw Mr. Grummidge appear at the top gallant rail, engaged in argument with someone I could not see. My gentleman repeatedly the gentleman repeatedly looked down at me, and so I thought in my direction as if I were the subject of a heated debate. At last, Mr. Grummidge came down to the dock. As he drew near, I saw that his face was flushed with an angry eye that alarmed me. Is something amiss? I asked in a whisper. Not at all, he snapped. All is planned. You have been expected. The ship's cargo is loaded. The captain is ready to sail, but... He trailed off, looked back at the ship, then turned again to me. It's just that, you see, those two families, the ones you would be traveling with, your companions, they have not arrived yet. But they will, I said, trying to compose myself. That's not entirely certain, Mr. Grummidge allowed. The second mate informs me that one family sent word that they could not reach Liverpool in time. The other family has a seriously ill child. There is concern that she should not be moved. Again, Mr. Grummidge glanced over his shoulder at the Seahawk, as if, in some fashion, these events were the ship's fault. Turning back to me, he continued, As it stands, Captain Jaggery will accept no delay of departure. Quite proper. He has his orders. But Mr. Grummidge, sir, I asked in dismay, what shall I do? Do? Miss Doyle, your father left orders that you were to travel on this ship at this exact time. I have very specific written orders in that regard. He left no money to arrange otherwise. As for myself, he said, I'm off for Scotland tonight in pressing business. But surely, I cried, frustrated by the way Mr. Grummidge was talking as much as by his news. Surely I mustn't travel alone. Miss Doyle, he returned. Being upon a ship with the full complement of a captain and crew could hardly be construed as traveling alone. But, but that would mean all men, Mr. Grummidge, and I am a girl. It would be wrong. I cried in absolute confidence that I was echoing the beliefs of my beloved parents. Mr. Grummidge drew himself up. Miss Doyle, he said loftily, in my world, judgments as to rights and wrongs are left to my creator, not to children. Now, be so good as to board the Seahawk at once.